Today's scripture comes from Jonah 1:17 to 2:10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You may be seated. And as you see, let me pray for us. So, Heavenly Father, we come before you now because we know that if transformation is going to happen in our hearts, in our lives, it's because of you. And so please, Lord, come by your Spirit, work through your Word, and do that work in us. Lord, do it for your glory and also for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, I do invite you to turn to that passage that was read, Jonah 1. Uh, finishing up the last verse in chapter 1 and then working our way through to the end of uh, chapter 2. This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Jonah. Thus far, so you know where we've been, God has called Jonah to go to Nineveh. He says, go east to Nineveh, and Jonah goes, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to those baddies. Uh, I'm heading the other direction. And so instead of going east, Jonah goes west to Tarshish which is on the edge of Spain, which is the edge of the known world. I'm running away from you, God. I'm getting as far away as I possibly can. And so Jonah, in his sin, in his rebellion, runs from God, and yet God, in his grace, pursues Jonah. And so what we see is then, so God hurls a storm onto the ship on which Jonah is trying to escape. That, as a result leads the sailors to hurl their cargo overboard. Maybe if we lighten the ship, we'll be able to make it through the storm, except that doesn't work. And so after trying a bunch of different things, they go, okay, this is not a normal storm. Something must be up. Who, whose fault is this? And they end up rolling dice, and the dice land on Jonah. And so they come to Jonah, and they go, Jonah, what have you done? Why is this happening to us, and Jonah goes, Well, I'm actually trying to run away from the God of heaven who made the land and the sea. And they go, Well, we're on the sea, and so that's not going to work either. So they go, Jonah, what do we, what do we have to do to you to make the storm stop? And so Jonah goes, Well, th- throw me overboard. Well, they go, That's not what we want to do. We don't want to kill you. So they try harder. They row harder to try to make it back to dry land, except that doesn't work. And so finally, they throw Jonah overboard. And the storm stops, but Jonah begins to sink to the bottom of the ocean. 
And so that's where we pick ourselves up. Now, your question is probably um, not first and foremost, okay, how does Jonah survive in the fish? But how did that take three whole sermons to get through chapter one? Um, there's, there's, you'll never know the answer to that question. Uh, but this morning, we're, we're, we're in the fish. And normally, I think we're tempted to skip over this chapter, or at least to skim our way through it, right? If, if children books are any indicator of the way we as adults process things, right? Children books go and they go, Jonah was swallowed up by the fish. And then the very next thing they say is, and three days later, the fish spat up Jonah onto dry land. And they just skip over chapter two. Now, I think part of that is because this is Hebrew poetry, which could be difficult to understand at times. But I also think it's because more often we're interested at what happens to Jonah rather than what happens in Jonah. And it's a shame. Because this chapter actually contains one of the most important verses in this entire book. It's chapter 9. It's verse 9. It says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. One commentator said that verse is the center of this entire chapter. But I would argue that's not just the center of this chapter. It's the center of this book. It's the center of the Old Testament. And it's the center of the entire Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. No one else. It belongs to Him. In, in the book of Revelation, this is what happens. It's given us a picture of what happens at the very end. When Jesus comes back, we read this. This is what happens. He says, After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and they're with palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice. What do they say? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. M Martin Luther, he says this. He says, often we read the Bible forwards but we actually understand the Bible backwards. So this is what happens at the end. W work your way backward. If all people from all nations are standing before the throne, crying out, salvation belongs to the Lord, well, somehow, way, they need to learn that lesson. And so how does Jonah learn that lesson? By being in the belly of the fish. In suffering. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The greatest lessons we learn about God often happen in pain, in suffering and in sorrow. And so the invitation this morning is for us just to sit with Jonah in the belly of the fish. 
to sit in his suffering. I think there's a reason this chapter is in poetry. See, if it's in just regular prose, what can happen is we can read it and go, well, that didn't happen to me, and so this must not uh, be something I need to know. But when Jonah speaks in poetry here, I think there's enough ambiguity, there's enough luster and life in his words that we go, oh, I've been through that. Or maybe I'm in that. And all of a sudden, we, we see ourselves in Jonah. And so maybe this is you this morning. Suffering, hurting, and pain. Just sit with Jonah. Sit with Jonah and allow him to speak on your behalf. Allow him to help you process what you're feeling and, and bring those to the Lord. So here, here, here's my outline for this morning. The place of salvation, number one. The power of salvation. And thirdly, the plea of salvation. The place, the power, and the plea. So here we go. Number one, the place of salvation. Look, look at verse one again. So Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So this is, this is, this is Jonah recounting what he felt like as he was drowning and sinking to the bottom of the ocean. He, he's now in the fish, but he's saying, this is how I felt when I was drowning. So, so hear this. Maybe this is how you feel this morning. Verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. That word, Sheol, is a reference to the place of the dead. It's a place where those who are excluded and separated from God exist and live. This is a place as far away from God's goodness as possible. Isaiah 38 says this. It says, For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. Jo Jonah feels like he, there's no hope and he's outside the reach of God. He goes on, verse 3. You, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He's saying, I was drowning. I was flailing. I was, I was trying to make it out, but the lower, but the harder I tried, the lower and the lower I sank. Maybe this is how you feel, as though you, you can't breathe. Like there's this shortness of breath in your lungs. There's this anxiety in your heart. God, I'm drowning. Feels like you're nowhere to be found. Verse 4 says, then I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. That word driven is the word um, used in Genesis chapter 3 when God kicks out Adam and Eve from the garden. We read this in Genesis chapter 3. He drove. They were driven. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Jonah feels like he's cut off from God. Feels as though God's displeased with him, as though there's this wall separating him from God. Feels like no matter how hard he prays, 
to just never getting through. And so he says, verse 5, the waters closed in over to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. The, the picture here is one of a burial at sea. It's like the, the tomb of darkness is enclosing in on him, he says. He says, I was, I was wrapped, I was mummified in seaweed clothes. Seaweed embalming me, knocking at death's door. He says in verse 6, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's, he's at the bottom of the ocean, right? He, he's where mountains go down past the water and plant their feet. I'm, I'm at the bottom. I feel like I'm as far away as I can get from you. He, he's down. He went down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes down into the inner parts of the ship. And now he's down at the bottom of the ocean floor. And he says, I was trapped. Bars imprisoned me. I was jailed. Felt like there was no way out of this mess. And so, so what, what, do we, what do we learn from Jonah's description of his anguish? What, what do we learn from Jonah's pain? Well, I think it's two things. One, I think we realize that the Bible has a realistic view of suffering. There's a realism here to suffering. The Bible does not ignore the presence of pain and does not pretend as though it doesn't exist. In The Princess Bride, there's this line where Princess Buttercup is talking to Wesley. Uh, he's, he's masked at this moment. He, she doesn't know it's him. And she says, you mock my pain. And his answer is, Life is pain, highness. And anyone who says differently is selling you something. Life is pain, highness. And anyone who tells you different is selling you something. The, the, this life, the Bible says, is full of suffering. Now, it's not, it's not part of God's initial plan. This is not part of his initial creation. God, God made the garden. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. He said it was good. There was no pain, no suffering, no tears, no death, no hurting. But then through sin, pain enters into the world. And it enters into every single nook and cranny of life. Now, this pain, this suffering happens because of, well, one, sometimes our own sin. Right? This is, this is Jonah here. Rebelling against God, and so this is a consequence of his own sin. But sometimes it's not our own sin that causes pain, it's the sin of others. If you've been sinned against, which is all of us to varying degrees, you don't need me to explain what this feels like. But sometimes it's not our sin, sometimes it's not the sin of others, sometimes it's just the sin of living in a broken world. There's just illness. And decay, and moths, and rust, babies struggling to breathe. This world is just broken. And so there's pain, feels like everywhere we go. But as realistic as the Bible is, as maybe of a downer as that is, there's a mercy in that. See, the mercy is that 
Um, the Bible here is telling us to expect it. See, often I think it's the case that part of our suffering, part of our pain, does not come from the, the, the suffering itself. It comes from the expectation that we shouldn't be suffering. Right? We, we suffer and we deal with that, but then part of us goes, this shouldn't be this way, and then we just compound the suffering and hurt. And the Bible here is just trying to say, look, this is part of life. Until Jesus comes back, there will be pain and suffering. So there's a realism to it. There's a, there's a mercy in helping us expect it. But secondly, in Jonah's suffering, we realize, please hear this, that no matter how far away you are from God, no matter how far away you feel like you are, you are never outside of his reach. Never. In verse 6, he says again, look, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah says, so I'm at the bottom of the sea. I feel like I'm as far away as I can get from you, God. And yet, God hears him in the highest of mountains. I'm, I'm at the roots of the mountains, but he says, God, you heard me from the temple. The, the temple was in Jerusalem, which is far away in and of itself, but the temple was also at the top of the mountain. He's saying this gap seems to be as far as possible, and yet, God, you still hear me when I cry to you. You still are not outside of my reach. I'm not sure what you're going through this morning. Maybe you feel as though you are knocking on death's door. No way out. Man, this is just going to be the end of you. You can't make it through. Man, please hear me. The Lord hears you. He still sees you. You're not outside of his reach. There's no place, there is no place from which God cannot save. Se secondly, we see the power of salvation. The power of salvation. So, so God hears Jonah, he sees Jonah, and then he acts towards Jonah. Look, look at verse 4 again. Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deeps around me, weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God. Re hear that again. Yet you, down, down, down I go, yet you, but you, but God brings him up, he says. This is one of the great but gods of the entire Bible, right? Our backs are against the wall. It seems like there's no way out, no reason for help. No way to make it through. And then all of a sudden, but God. Right? We, we see this when Israel, standing at the edge of the Red Sea, Egypt's armies coming at their back, nowhere to go. But God. 
opens up a sea and makes a way through. We see it in the fiery furnace where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there, furnace cranked up to as hot as they can go. Their death is imminent, but then God joins them in the furnace and keeps them alive. We see this in David and Goliath, a little boy standing against the giant. No reason he should win that battle. But God shows up and slays the giant. We see it when Joseph is sold into slavery. His brothers meant it for good, but God meant it. Sorry, his brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We see it when Jesus is laid in the tomb, but God raises him up from the dead. Jonah is down at the bottom of the ocean, but God brings him back to life. And we read it in Genesis chapter, or Ephesians chapter 2. This, this is our story now. And you were dead. Hear this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There is suffering but God. There is pain but God. There is the power of sin but God. And there is death but God. And so we read in chapter 9 or verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is good news. That we have a but God who always is there for us. But, but this is where things get interesting. Um, how is it that God saves Jonah? Please listen, because this goes against our natural human nature, okay? This is interesting. How does God save Jonah? He says, verse 17 of chapter 1, again, listen, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Um, there would have been lots of ways that God could have saved Jonah. There are. He could have sent another boat. He could have calmed the storm just enough so that Jonah could have made it back to shore. He could have had one of those little pieces of cargo that the sailors throw overboard, pass on by, and Jonah could have grabbed a hold of that and made it to safety. And yet, he doesn't choose any of those ways. Instead, he chooses a fish to what? swallow Jonah. That, that word swallow is important. Uh, in the book of Psalms, we, we, we read this, Psalm 21. He says, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. And then listen, the Lord will swallow them. It's the same word. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Swallowing is a picture of judgment. 
God is not saving Jonah by withholding the consequences of sin. God is choosing to save Jonah through the consequences of sin. It's salvation through judgment. Look at what he says in verse 3 again. He says, For you cast me into the deep. He's talking to God. God, you threw me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. God, you're sovereign over my drowning. You could have stopped the waves from crashing over me. But God, you sent waters. You sent those billows to crash over me. You, you sent me sinking down to the bottom of the ocean. It, in his book, A Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Alken tells the story of how he met his wife um, when they were very young. They were, um, they were not Christians when they met. They, they got married. They fell in love. Um, and then through basically their um, friendship with C.S. Lewis, they both became believers. They both became followers of Jesus. Except um, very early on, then after, um, Sheldon's wife died. Uh, she was in her 30s when she passed away. And he says this just devastated both of them. I mean, her, her own suffering was hard, but maybe even more so, uh, his grief just almost crushed him. And um, him and C.S. Lewis begin to trade letters. And in one of those letters, uh, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, Sheldon, you have been treated with a severe mercy. A severe mercy. He, he, he writes this in his book. Sheldon says, It was death. My wife's death. That was a severe mercy. There is no doubt at all that Lewis is saying precisely that. That death, so full of suffering for us both, suffering that still overwhelmed my life, was yet a severe mercy. A mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. And what he goes on to explain is, you go, I didn't realize this, but God was showing me that my trust in him was about an inch deep. And really, he says, what I really put my hope in, what I really found my identity in, was my wife's love. And when God took her away from me, my life, my, the foundation upon which I built my life was beginning to crumble beneath me. And I realized that I needed a better Savior. I needed someone who could deliver me despite any difficulty that comes my way. And so he, got, he says God was basically stripping away those idols in my life, those secondary things that I looked into for hope, for security, for satisfaction, and instead was helping me root my trust in him. And so let me ask you this morning, is God doing a purifying work in your heart? Are, are you under the knife right now of a severe mercy? Is God cutting away things that seem to just wedge, place a wedge and a gap between you and him? Is he cutting those things away so that you'd be drawn closer into relationship with him? 
Because he is trying to give you life. That, that is his aim. And, and Jonah sees that. He, the language he uses is actually really fascinating. So, so look at, look at verse 17 again. This is, this is beautiful. So he says, and the Lord appointed a great fish in the Hebrew. That's masculine. It's a, it's a male fish. Just bear with me for a second. He says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then he goes on. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, but now he uses a feminine word for fish. It's a, it's a female fish all of a sudden. And then he says, he goes on in verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly. But now that word belly can also be translated womb. Out of the belly of Sheol, or out of the womb of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. See, Jonah's saying this, look, what was meant to destroy me, what was supposed to be this belly of death, actually became the place of new life. What, what was supposed to destroy me became the womb of which I experienced new life. That's what God does when he brings a severe mercy into our lives. He seeks to give us a better, bigger, more holistic life. Now, why is it, question, why is it that Jonah could have such confidence? Right? Why, why is Jonah can believe this? Right? He, he's praying this, and he's still inside the belly. Like, as far as he knows, he, he's as good as dead. Why does he expect God to turn judgment into salvation? Well, he hints at it twice. So in verse 4, he says, Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Holy temple. Then he says the same thing in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. See, the temple was not just the dwelling place of God. It was also the place where sacrifices were made to God. And I think Jonah has those sacrifices in mind. Because he says in verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. See, sacrifices... What this act of slaughtering another animal was supposed to depict the consequences for sin. The consequence for sin is death. The consequences are brutal. And the result, the, the deserved payment for sin is death. The animal dies. Blood is shed. And yet, in, in the sacrifice, there's a hopefulness. The hopefulness is that it's actually not necessarily my death that can pay for my sin, but maybe it's the death of another. There's an exchange. Their life in the place of mine. See, Jonah goes, look, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've been running from you. But God, I'm trusting that there's a way out. I'm, I'm trusting that someone, something else might be sacrificed on my behalf. And we, church, we know more than Jonah did. See, if, if verse 9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord, 
Well, in Matthew chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph and he goes, Joseph, Mary's going to have a baby and this is what you're going to name him. You're going to name him Jesus. Because you know what the name Jesus means? It means salvation belongs to the Lord. That's how you translate Jesus. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus becomes the sacrifice on Jonah's behalf. Jesus becomes the sacrifice on our behalf. Listen to the way Rosemary Nixon puts it. She says this. She says, Salvation is not, in the first instance, please hear this, the Lord God taking us out of our mess, but it's God leading us within it. God doesn't first take us out of our mess. He meets us within it. Which means God doesn't first take us out of judgment. He enters into judgment. The the picture you should have of God is not him standing on the edge of the pool, throwing you a life preserver and going, swim to me. Just grab a hold. Okay, if you you grab a hold, good enough. No, no. Jesus enters into judgment. He throws himself into the floodwaters and he drowns to the bottom of the ocean. Jesus giving his life for ours. His death becomes the sacrifice that, that pays the judgment we deserve. And look, if Jesus dies, and that means he cares about you and your suffering. If Jesus was willing to suffer in order order to alleviate our suffering, well, that means he cares about what we go through. He doesn't give his life and go, I don't care about you. No, he jumps into the waters. He puts himself on the cross and he dies in our place. Jesus um, does not skirt death. Um, Jesus, to paraphrase one author, um, jumps into death and he blows a hole out the backside of it. Jesus enters into death and in his resurrection, he provides a way out so that though we die, if that's the worst that life can do to us, is kill us. It actually just means we have a new path to life. What's the power of God that saves us from suffering? It's Jesus in his suffering. That's the power that saves us. Because Jesus' death was turned to life, that means our suffering can be turned to good. Lastly then, the plea of salvation. Um, how is it that Jonah accesses the salvation offered to him? How how is it that Jonah is saved? Well, he says in verse 2, all I did is I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. That's all he did. It's just faith. Just crying out to God. God, help me. See, Jonah, he finally relinquishes control over his life. He goes, okay, I can't save myself. I can't do this on my own. God, no matter how hard I try, it's not helping. I need you, God. And so he cries out to God, God, save me. It's all I got. I need you. I need your sacrifice. I need your forgiveness. But but Jonah's faith Um, in God is more than just trusting him for salvation. See, if he goes, okay, God, I'm trusting you for salvation, 
Jonah's also going to go, okay, then I'm going to trust you with everything else too. So go, go, whatever else you ask of me, I'll do it too. In, in Jonah's case, that looked like surrendering his life and going back to Nineveh. Right? So he says in verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. Then he says, what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah would have vowed to be a prophet of God, to be the mouthpiece of God. And now he's going, okay, God, if you want me to go to Nineveh, if you want me to give them your message, I'll go. I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm trusting you in all of it. But here's what we end up seeing about Jonah's faith. It's imperfect. (laughs) It's not perfect. So Jonah will go to Nineveh. We'll look at this next week. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he's not happy about it. He is grumpy and bitter. He's not glad to be there. Um, Jonah will ask for God's help, but Jonah, you see, still fails to grasp the concept of grace. He still thinks God's saving him because of something good within him. Something inherent goodness. Listen to verse 2 again. He says, I called out to the Lord. I did this out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What, what we'll come to see about Jonah is he's still full of pride. There's still a deep-rooted sin in his life. Which is why I think actually God speaks to the fish and says, you know what, please vomit Jonah out. Because that's humiliating. <laughs> to be vomited by a fish. And Jonah needs to still learn that lesson of humility. But Jonah's faith isn't perfect. But this is why this is good news. Because if his faith is imperfect and yet God saves him, well, listen, our faith is far from perfect also. How often do we pray to the Lord, God, I desperately need you, only to be distracted and try to concoct a way out on our own? How often do you prayers sound like that? Mine do. How often do we come to the Lord and go, God, I need you. But then figure it out by ourselves. How often do we fail to show the love that God shows us, to show the grace that God shows us to others? How often do we fail to actually recognize our own sin and instead blame others for the suffering we go through? How often do we say, God, I will never sin again. God, I'm sorry. I won't do it. I promise, I'm done being angry with my kids. I'm done being impatient. I'm done looking at pornography. Only again to fall into that same sin. And yet, the good news is, please hear this, God saves Jonah despite his imperfect faith. And so God can save us despite our imperfect faith also. We're still a work in process. But the good news is this. Look, God does not save us because of the strength of our faith. No, no, no. God saves us because of his strength. And we're just holding on to him. Let's say you are desperately sick. 
You're desperately sick and you knew there was a medicine that could help you. Now, there's two options. Let's, there's two people. One person, man, they know the ins and outs of this medicine. They know the biochemistry behind it, the way that it was synthesized. They know how much to take. They know what it's going to do once it, they take it. And yet they go, ah, no thanks. They know everything about the salvation. But they don't take it. And on the other hand, you have someone who goes, I don't know anything about this medicine. Honestly, it blows me away that this little pill could heal me of this illness that is supposed to destroy me. And yet they go, but I trust it. And I take it. Look, our faith, God saves us not based on the strength of our faith. Not based on you having all the answers of having your plan figured out and knowing everything you need to know about God. He doesn't save you on the basis of how perfect your repentance is. No, he saves you on the basis of you going, God, all I got is I'm trusting in you. And work in my imperfectness. That's the hope we have. And so look, if you are hurting this morning, you don't need to know how it's all going to work out. Your faith in God doesn't have to be perfect. Maybe right now all you got is this little thread that you're holding on to. Just trust him. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the strength of the one we put our faith in. So let me end like this. In her book, Confronting Christianity, author Rebecca McLaughlin um, explains the Christian perspective on suffering. Um, to make her point, she uses a helpful illustration from The Lord of the Rings. There's this moment in The Lord of the Rings where Frodo and Sam, these two hobbits, on their way to Mordor, this place where they have to get, this place of death in order to destroy the ring. They're on their way there, and they find themselves at the lowest point in the narrative. This feels like the lowest of lows. And yet in that moment, little Sam goes, Frodo, just imagine the stories they might tell of us one day. Imagine the, the story of a, our adventure they're going to tell one day. And then he begins to tell the story. This, he imagines what the people might tell of them. And then Frodo quickly interrupts him and says, hold on, hold on. And Frodo says this. We're going on a bit too fast. You and I, Sam, are still stuck in the worst places of the story. And it is all too likely that some will say at this point, Shut the book now, Dad. We don't want to read anymore. Maybe you feel like that right now. Like you just want the book to be shut on your story. Like you you don't know where this is going to go and you don't want to know where it's going to go. But hear this, McLaughlin uh, McLaughlin comments. She says, the hobbits do not know how their story will end. If it ended in this moment, it would be bleak and hopeless. But the story goes on. Tolkien takes them through darkness and suffering and loss to a painful victory. Tolkien's work was sculpted by his Christian faith. And that faith was not just in Jesus' death, but also in his resurrected life. The journey of all central characters is through darkness. Even death to new life. But tap them on the shoulder at that darkest moment... And none would know where they are in the story. 
Suffering is the thread with which Christ's name is stitched into our lives. Look, you may not know where you are in the story, but if you are in Christ, suffering is not the end of your story. It's only the doorway to new life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, and so we ask now that you would fix our eyes on Jesus. God, many right here, God, are suffering. They feel, Lord, like it's too scary to even go on. Feels like there's no hope. So Jesus, I pray, would you come by your spirit and work in their hearts. Help them to see, Lord, that your death was turned to new life. Jesus, we pray, go with us. Meet us in our hurt. God, some of us, this is our own doing. We need to come before you, Lord, and we repent. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. For others, Lord, this is the sin that someone else has brought on them. God, we pray that you would help us to forgive, knowing that you, Lord, can even use their wickedness against us for good. And for some, Lord, this is the sin of just living in a broken world. So, God, we pray that you would bring healing now. And if not, if, Lord, you say, but still a little while longer, we ask Jesus, come quickly. Come and make all things new. We pray in his name. Amen.